pray together. Father, we thank you for what you have done. Thank you for saying, sending Jesus for us. The good news of great joys, there is born for you a Savior. So we give you thanks this morning. Thank you that you demonstrated your love toward us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still ungodly, while we were still enemies, while we were still absolutely helpless to do anything or change anything, you sent Christ to this world and you sent him to the cross and you raised him again to be our savior. And so we thank you that you invite us, whoever we are, whatever we've done, to come to Jesus as the all-sufficient Savior. And I pray for anyone here this morning or listening online that hasn't put their hope in Christ, that even today they would see their need for Jesus as their Savior and receive him as their Savior. And for those who by your grace have come to know him. Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts as we open your word now, that you would cause us to have a deeper thankfulness and a deeper love for Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen. We're all very familiar with the two longer versions of the Christmas story. We all know about the angels and the shepherds and the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem in Luke chapter 2. We all remember the account of the wise men following the star and worshiping Jesus in Matthew chapter 2. But we might not be as familiar with some of the other references to the birth of Christ in the Bible. Our first text for this morning is a beautiful one-sentence summary of Christmas. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I'm going to be looking at verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So first, Jesus was rich before the first Christmas. It says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, rich in what way? Well, Jesus was rich in status. He enjoyed the very highest position in the universe. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 and 
6. Philippians 2.5 says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Grasp means something to hang on to at all costs, something to cling to as if it might somehow be taken away. So Jesus was never nervous that he might lose this high status. It was rightfully his. Or if you have the word robbery in that verse, the idea is of taking something that did not really belong to him. So if Angela takes the car out of the garage and drives it, she is not stealing it. It's rightfully hers. Her name is on the title. She is legally the co-owner of that car. It belongs to her just as much as it belongs to me. And in a similar way, the status of being fully God belongs just as much to Jesus as it belongs to God the Father Almighty. Second, Jesus was also rich in glory before the first Christmas. Turn to John 17, verse 5. John 17, verse 5. This is Jesus praying to the Father the night he's about to be portrayed. And he prays, now, Father, verse 5, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. The word glory in the Old Testament is the idea of weighty or heavy, that which is impressive in others' eyes and prompts a response of deep respect and great honor. In the New Testament, it's the idea of high esteem or excellent reputation, well-deserved fame. And so Jesus is praying that the glory he had before the incarnation, not just before the incarnation, but before the creation of the world would be restored so that he would be seen and honored as the glorious Lord that he is and always has been. In addition to being rich in status and rich in glory, Jesus was also rich in possessions before that first Christmas. Go to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. The very first verse. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in various Portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Prince Charles was heir to the British throne, and so this past year when his mother, Queen Elizabeth, died, he became king, and he inherited over Four billion dollars worth of castles, estates, jewelry, and other assets. He was heir to a vast amount of wealth, and now it all belongs to him. But that's nothing compared to Jesus. Jesus is the heir of literally all things. 
Jesus is the rightful owner of everything that exists. In Psalm 2, God the Father says this to Jesus. Psalm 2, verse 8. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possessions. So Jesus is heir of all things. So no one is richer than Jesus. No one higher in status. No one greater in glory. No one wealthier in possessions. But second, Jesus became poor that first Christmas. Back in 2 Corinthians, look at the next phrase that describes what took place when Jesus came to earth. Though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor. Every December we sing, mild he lays his glory by. So he's as glorious as God the Father, he lays that aside. Or last Sunday we sang, why lies he in such mean estate? Estate means condition. And mean in this context means humble, poor, lacking dignity, low in rank or birth. So let's look again at Philippians 2. Jesus exists in the form of God. He doesn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Verse 7, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men or born in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is not just a king exchanging his royal robes for a beggar's rags, like the story of the prince and the pauper. It is not just a person becoming a grub, as C.S. Lewis suggested. A grub, by the way, is a, a larvae of an insect. Just think of all you'd give up to make that change. The mystery of the incarnation is far greater. The supreme being becomes a human being. The infinite creator becomes a finite creature. The eternal son of God becomes a newborn baby. The one who was served by angels becomes the servant of all. And the prince of life, as he is called in Acts 3, dies on a cross. Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, the son of man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. As we saw a couple weeks ago, Jesus was born to die. The purpose of Christmas was Good Friday and Easter. Some other verses in 2 Corinthians explain the significance of Jesus' coming and his death. Uh, go to 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18 and 19. Now all these things are from God. Look what God has done. Who reconciled us to himself through Christ. 
and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. So this is why we sing God and sinners reconciled, brought back together again after there's been a barrier in the relationship. Sin was a barrier between us and God. Isaiah 59 two says, your sins have made a separation between you and your God. We're cut off because of sin. And there was nothing we could do to remove that barrier and restore a right relationship with God. You don't have to turn to it because you might get lost in the Old Testament. But Micah 6, verse 6, With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in ten thousand rivers of oils? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts? the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. In other words, there is nothing I could possibly offer to God that would ever be enough to cancel out my sin and make things right with him. Even my firstborn child. Just thousands of rivers of oil. That's a lot of oil. Thousands of rams. All that combined could not remove the barrier of sin between God and me But God intervened, and he sent Jesus to do for us what we could never do ourselves. And so in verse 21, it says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So God treated Jesus as a guilty sinner, even though he was perfectly innocent of all sin. And our trespasses are no longer counted against us, as it said in verse 18, because they were counted against Christ. And now God treats all those who trust in him as though they had lived Christ's perfect life. His perfect righteousness is credited to our account. And as a result, we're fully reconciled to God. The the barrier of sin has been removed. This righteousness is been placed on on us. We saw a couple weeks ago like a a robe of righteousness, Isaiah 61, 10. And so now there's nothing in the way. Everything is at peace again with God. And if you have not made your peace with God, look at verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And what's interesting about that verse is he wrote that not at a crusade addressing unbelievers at large. He's writing this to a church in the city of Corinth. But he assumed there's a mixed group in the audience. There are those who are already believers in Christ. And he assumes there are some that aren't yet. And he says, I'm appealing to you as if God himself is appealing through me. Come to Jesus. Be reconciled to God. Make things right. Be at peace. It's all through Jesus. So turn away from your rebellion against God. Trust Christ alone to do everything necessary to restore you to God.
So we saw that Jesus was rich before the first Christmas and that he became poor that first Christmas. And third, we see that we become rich because of Jesus. Look at the last phrase in verse 9 that tells us one of the reasons or one of the outcomes why Jesus came that first Christmas. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Why? So that. So here's the purpose. Here's the outcome. Jesus did that so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. We were spiritually bankrupt. We were hopelessly in debt to God and had absolutely nothing to offer him. And so we deserve to pay off that debt forever in hell. And it would literally never be paid off. But God intervened. He not only canceled the debt we owed because Jesus paid it in full on the cross. And it just subtract our negative. He has made us rich beyond what we have, could have ever imagined. So listen to these verses. Go to Ephesians 1.3. Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Every single spiritual blessing has been given to us by God because of Christ. Go to Romans 10, verse 12. Romans 10, verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. And then if you're still in Romans, go to Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs or joint heirs or co-heirs with Christ. So remember, Jesus is the one who is heir of all things. And now we are co-heirs with him of all things. So St. Augustine in the 4th century said it this way, the good things that this inheritance is made up of are so many that they exceed number, so great that they exceed measure, so precious that they are above estimation. Therefore, it must needs be a soul-satisfying inheritance. So... Patrick Henry, as in give me liberty, give me death. Patrick Henry, founding father in the United States. He was thinking about the inheritance he would leave his children. He writes a will. And this is what he wrote in this will. I have now disposed of all my property to my family. 
There's one more thing I wish I could give them, and that is faith in Jesus Christ. If they had that, and I had not given them one penny, they would be rich. And if I had not given them that, and I had given them all the world, they would be poor indeed. So what would be an appropriate response to these realities about the first Christmas? That Jesus was infinitely rich, but he became incredibly poor so that we might become unimaginably rich. And the next chapter has a one-sentence answer. Maybe you've seen it on a Christmas card. It's a pretty familiar verse. Verse 15 of chapter 9. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So what is the gift that we are thanking God for? Various writers have suggested it's grace, or eternal life, or even money as the gift. Well, here are a few reasons why I believe that the gift is Jesus. First, the language of God giving Jesus as a gift to us. So go to Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8, the very last verse, verse 22. Then they will look on to the earth, and behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. But... There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. Jumping to verse 2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. So here is a dramatic change from darkness to great light, from gloom to great joy. So how is this major transformation going to come about? And so look at verse 6. For, because a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. So this dramatic change is going to happen because someone is coming. And we're told it's a child being born. So that's just a comment that just like other babies, it's baby's going to be born. But then the next phrase, a son will be given. Now that's not just telling us 
the baby's going to be a baby boy. It's saying this son is worthy to be called Wonderful Counselor. He's worthy to be called Mighty God. He's worthy to be called Everlasting Father or Father of Eternity. And he's the Prince of Peace. In other words, the Son who is going to be given to us is none other than the Son of God. No one else meets those names but Jesus. And that's the Son who is given to us. The gift is Jesus given to us. Or John 3.16. You all know this verse. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. He did not just give us the gift of grace or the gift of eternal life. God's great love was demonstrated in giving his own son to the world. And in giving us Christ, God gives us all other gifts. Listen to Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? So there's the gift is Jesus, and then we are made rich, we're given all things. So here's a quote from Ralph Robinson, who wrote a book in the 1600s called Christ All and in All. And in the chapter called Christ the Gift of God, he explains the nature of this gift. Referring to Jesus, he says, He is an eternal gift. God may bestow other gifts upon men and afterwards see cause to remove them. But those to whom Christ is given enjoy him forever. He is a soul-satisfying gift. Other gifts, and he mentions riches and honors, do not satisfy the soul, but Christ satisfies the utmost capacities of the soul. The soul cannot imagine a higher gift than Jesus Christ. He is a comprehensive gift. The apostle mentions spiritual blessings in Christ in Ephesians 1.3. There are millions of blessings in this one blessing. The epitome of all gifts is Jesus Christ. When Christ is given to a soul, all the promises are given with him. When Christ is given, all the graces of God are given with him. When Christ is given, all spiritual privileges are given. When Christ is given, pardon is given, peace is given, salvation is given. Jesus Christ is all in all. God hath no greater gift to bestow. Man hath no greater gift to desire. So I'll say that again. God has no greater gift he could ever give us. And there's no greater gift we could ever desire or get than him. So that's reason number one. I believe the gift that 915 is talking about is the gift of Jesus himself. A second reason for believing that Jesus is the gift is the language used to describe this gift. Indescribable, unspeakable, inexpressible. You might not know this, Paul actually invented a number of words in his letters. This is one of them. This word didn't exist anywhere else. He invents it, and it's only used in this verse of all his letters. 
And what he's trying to say is, human language is hopelessly inadequate to describe the gift God gave us. No words can even come close to expressing how wonderful and how precious this gift is. Now, wouldn't it be really strange for Paul to use such lofty language to talk about grace or to talk about eternal life as if those were more important or more valuable than Jesus himself? Remember in Philippians 3, he says, I count all things as lost compared to the all-surpassing value of knowing Christ. That's the all-surpassing thing in the world. So he's not going to use this language of indescribable, inexpressible, unspeakable gift and say, grace. Grace is amazing, and it is a gift. Eternal life is amazing, and it is a gift. But Jesus is even bigger than that. He's inexpressible. A third reason for believing that verse 15 is referring to Jesus If you're visiting, I'm sorry, I get this almost every week. I just have to catch my breath. So, A third reason for believing this is talk about Jesus is the shared testimony of respected men such as Matthew Poole, Matthew Henry, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Spurgeon, John MacArthur, John Piper, and a number of other writers who all agree that Jesus is the gift. Now, none of these men are infallible, but it does get your attention when all these men come to the exact same conclusion. I find this quote from John Piper compelling. The gospel is the good news of our final and full enjoyment of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That this enjoyment had to be purchased for sinners at the cost of Christ's life makes his glory shine all the more brightly. And that this enjoyment is a free and unmerited gift makes it shine more brightly still. But the price Jesus paid for the gift and the unmerited freedom of the gift are not the gift. The gift is Christ himself as the glorious image of God, seen and savored with everlasting joy. And one more reason to believe that Jesus is the gift would be our subjective sense of things. So here's two examples. One, I heard a blurb on a Christian radio station. One of the greatest gifts of love God gave us is the gift of his son at Christmas. One of the greatest gifts. What could possibly compare with Jesus? How is he just in the same category with a variety of other gifts and not the absolutely greatest gift we could ever imagine that God would give us? Or when we sing the third verse of O Little Town of Bethlehem, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. Wondrous is an adjective meaning to be marveled at. 
Were any of us thinking, how silently, how silently this wondrous gift of grace was given? Or how silently, how silently this wondrous gift of eternal life was given? Or do our minds automatically just fill in how silently the wondrous gift of Jesus is given? And by the way, the hymn writer, if you look it up in your hymn book, check it out. He used a capital G in the lyrics for the word gift. In other words, he believed Jesus was the wondrous gift to be marveled at when we sing about Christmas. But even if we agree that Jesus is the gift, we aren't done with this verse yet. God's inexpressible gift calls for a heartfelt response. So New American Standard, ESV, New King James, and NIV all add an exclamation mark at the end of the sentence as a way of trying to capture the strong feelings behind those words. Those translations don't slap exclamation marks randomly. They save them for very big things. This is one of them. It's a way of trying to express that our hearts are overwhelmed and astonished that God would give us the all-surpassing gift of Jesus. And if you're here today and you've received the gift of Jesus, our hearts resonate with what Matthew Henry wrote about this verse. Jesus Christ is indeed the unspeakable gift of God unto this world, a gift we all have reason to be very thankful for. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this gift. We can never thank you enough. We will thank you for all eternity that you gave Jesus. And in giving him, you gave us all things. And so we rejoice this morning. We give you thanks this morning. We are amazed that you would love us so much that you would give such a precious gift. I pray for, again for anyone who's never received this gift. Lord, the Bible says, as many as received him, to them he gave the gift of eternal life, of the gift of becoming sons of God. Would you work in their hearts that they might embrace Jesus? It's in his name we pray. Amen. Before we sing our last song, this is the third song out of five today that uses the word adore. And so in case you need a refresher on what the word adore means, it means to worship or honor with profound reverence, to regard with loving admiration and devotion, to love in the highest degree, to regard with utmost esteem, affection, and respect. So that's what we're singing as we sing, O come let us adore him. Let's stand together.